I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonic Wars podcast and the Christmas special, folks. Whoop whoop it may not well actually it might be snowing wherever you are in the world because i guess it's not just a uk thing it's actually very drizzly on this chilly sunday evening here in the uk um but hey why are we complaining about the weather because it's christmas yay i mean i've even pulled out the tricorn hat and stuck some tinsel on it so it's it's definitely very festive in here tonight he says as somebody who could easily pass for scrooge And on that theme of Scrooge and A Christmas Carol, we are going to proceed. This is Napoleon the Reckoning. The theory behind this is actually it was partly born out of some social media backlash about how I don't praise Napoleon all the time. And on these podcasts, I'm incredibly honest about the fact that I don't particularly rate the guy. And apparently this is deplorable. That means that everybody should boycott the podcast because I'm a biased Brit who's just swallowed British propaganda. I don't understand history properly. I'm a crap historian and I should just leave. On that note, thank you for watching and good night. No, no, that's not how we're going to do things. But it did get me thinking, why not have a session in which we go full a Christmas carol on you all and see if we can do something about Napoleon's reputation. Have a little look at the good, the bad, and as my show notes say, the ugly behind the guy and pick it apart. Now, how best to do that than to invite on some of, not all of, but don't get getting jealous on me now, some of my favourite Napoleonic commentators and historians. I am joined by the mighty Josh Proven, Master of Adventures in Historyland, author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, we're not going to do the joke because it's got old now, but the joke is still there. Uh, good to see you, Josh. How are you doing? You're looking suitably kind of suave this evening. You've broken out the scarf, I see. Very festive scarf. Appreciated. 
Uh, I'm feeling more powerful than I was two seconds ago. I've uh, the the Josh the Mighty is a new one. There Happy we holidays, go. everyone. It's it's official now. I said it, therefore it is a thing. We also have the equally spectacular Rachel Stark with us. The the star, quite frankly, of the Marshall series, which continues to go down a storm every single time. Rachel, great to see you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. You have the Christmas jumper game this evening. I'm bringing you out the morning, won, yeah. You have won the Christmas jumper fight, partly because the rest of us haven't participated in the Christmas jumper fight. But uh, no, Josh, just because the jumper is white does not mean you can claim it's a Christmas jumper. I'm not having it. Just no. Just no. Um, so congratulations on your victory. I'm sure that's leaving you kind of feeling very enthused. Um, looking forward to being nice about Napoleon this evening. Yeah, I, I don't normally feel I'm particularly anti-Napoleon. I have a sort of line where I'm pro-Napoleon and then I cross it and then I think, hold on, you're taking a mick now. So cross the line. See, so we're not all just being horrible about Napoleon tonight. You're, you're, we're gonna, I'm even going to say nice things. This is unheard of. But more on that in just a moment. Last, but by no means least, we have the lovely Beatrice de Graaf, the internationally renowned historian, uh, professor of diplomatic history at Utrecht University, author of Fighting Terror, Securing um, Europe After Napoleon. Have I got the title right there? Apologies, I'm doing this. Yes, you have. Okay, I have. Right I have. Lovely. We'll leave that in just to show how really well run this show is. Um, Beatrice, it's great to see you. You may not have won the Christmas jumper game, but you do seem to have won the necklace game this evening. This is not a necklace. This is an, a kind of a shirt that I wear beneath my, my, my plover because it's so freezingly cold out here in the attic of my house. Um, uh, and I still do want to make an argument that bright pink also counts as a Christmas color. Well, Josh nods kind of reassuringly, but I think perhaps he's he's just trying to sort of butter you up so that you go and do more episodes for him on Adventures in History Land. Would you do just a thing, Josh? I would I would say that pink is a festive color. I think it should be recognized as such, but I, I already jumped the gun on you. I've already asked Beatrice to come back before this weeks ago. So I am unbiased. Okay, that's his story and he's sticking to it. We do have a comment in the chat already um, that Rachel also thought it was a super bling necklace. So I am thus vindicated. I actually thought it was a shirt. Oh, oh, look, I, I tell you, he's he's trying to be nice to make sure <laughs> no, there's like a whole it, mini series it is, of Beatrice it is on obvious, Adventures in History Land. It is obviously the colour of something. It is, thank you, <laughs> It, it could be like a, a rough, perhaps. It, it's no, no, like... I think I think Josh over, over, overtook you on the sartorial dimension by far. Well, that's me told. And isn't that just ever so slightly rude? Right, to business, um, because otherwise we will just heckle each other all night. And that is not the point of this show. We're going to break it down into a series of... Uh, categories tonight and just kind of do a, a series of rounds I think although I suspect the line will get blurred quite quickly we're going to look at the good the bad the ugly the brilliant and the misunderstood look see I even tried to be nice and balanced in how I structured the episode because being a historian means that you look at all sides of the argument and come to a conclusion based on the evidence in front of you you don't just parrot one perspective based on a single fact take note folks I'm going to I'm need like... to redo my prep. Excuse me a second. 
you prepped for this show, Josh? What, <laughs> what on earth were you thinking? What is this madness? Um, so, hey, diving straight in, the good. And, and it's important to recognise here that there is good. I'm not going to be, oh, my, my tinsel has fallen off my hat. It's going wrong already. Um, it's important to recognise that there is some good to be acknowledged because Napoleon is fundamentally a human being. And in being a human being, there are good elements to his character and good things that he did with his life. There are also some bad things. We'll pick up on those in due course. In terms of the good, obviously the military capability is something that has to be acknowledged there. I'm not going to hog the mic. The other thing I'm going to say at this stage, though, as a point for discussion, is the code with a heavy caveat. And we'll get to the heavy caveat in the, the bad section in due course, because not everything about Napoleon's legal reforms was perfect or even beneficial. However, set that to one side for a moment. The code, the military ability, I'm going to throw those out there as discussion points, but also anything else that you want to throw in the mix. Rachel, I'm going to come to you first. Um, I think if Napoleon had a superpower, it was charisma. He was intensely charismatic and he could he was exceptional at talking people into agreeing with his point of view, even when they didn't necessarily really see eye to eye um, on the fundamentals of any topic. And he was a sort of very early, I, I say this with my business hat on, but he was a very sort of early example of somebody who knew how to build a brand and obviously, you know, symbolism and heraldry and all this kind of stuff wasn't new to, to Napoleon, but in the sense that he could create his own myth, he t ended up telling his own story. They say history is written by the victors, and even though in the end he didn't triumph, we do still consume his story largely in the way that Napoleon wants it to, wanted us to. Um, and I think that's something that was very powerful in that... I. Also, it, it comes with a caveat that I think the problem was he fell for his own myth eventually, and he genuinely did think he was undefeatable. But being able to build that story in the way that he did and use his charisma in the way that he did was pretty exceptional. Plus the, the fact that he was a you know a prodigious modernizer as well. With everything that I know we say about the military, but he he did found modern France in many ways. You know, the, the Bank of France, the Lycée system, the public infrastructure, the sewers, the roads, etc. Um, all of that's fundamentally beneficial. There are approving nods around the room, Josh particularly. So I'm going to throw the mic over to you, Josh. Uh, well, I, I agree totally. One of the, the good things about Napoleon or the impressive things about Napoleon is his character in 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 the sense that he was an incredibly charismatic person um so long as you weren't outright you know one of his enemies or something like that it was very difficult not to come away from a meeting with the man and not be impressed with him in some way he was very intelligent and um obviously he was personally brave and driven he was not a coward or anything like that and he had a great focus and intent on what he wanted to achieve with with certain things um and he had glamour you know, he he was people love to cheer him on because he was a glamorous figure, uh, a dramatic figure. If somebody had um, as if somebody had sort of uh, brought back a classical hero 
from the dead, you know, and this he went down wonderfully with a neoclassical audience who uh, who loved the stories of, of Alexander and Caesar and things like that. And um, I also quite like that he tried to do right by his family as well. He was very caring about his family where he could. Many of them disappointed him and he was unable to... <laughs> To, to to guide them as some of them needed, but uh, he did try and do his best for his family. And I liked that about him. That is an interesting point that you make there. Yes, he does try to do right by his family. You could argue that both ways, of course, which is, you know, do you or don't you, we'll reserve judgment right now, level an accusation of cronyism. Then there's a, another caveat that you throw in there, which is that is that fundamentally different to what any of the other houses monarchical houses were doing during this period and i would suggest well no not really think about the number of bourbons that are rattling around europe in various places at this point in time i think that's a very good point because another thing i was thinking about was how um he was this sort of um you know in a way he became you know how there's this idea of the enlightened despot in the 18th century he sort of becomes another ideal kind of enlightened despot, um, a, a monarch who is a modernizer, essentially. And so he plays the game very well. He does. Um, and he. There, I, I get what you say about that kind of classical edge, which is something that I would guess he sort of tries to cultivate. You know, these are the people that he's idolizing when he's at French Military Academy, right? He's reading these people kind of trying to think about ways that, well, um, I mean, maybe that's kind of reading, reading the history tele teleologically and kind of looking at the end point and kind of trying to draw that direct line. But he idolizes these people. And, you know, there's no denying that when he's building the empire and the symbology of the empire draws heavily on Rome. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, he wasn't alone in drawing inspiration from the classics. Um, the revolution itself uh, is visually very uh, Roman Republican um, and to its an extent Greek. Uh, they lapped it up. Um, it was what was produced to uh, everything from Phrygian caps of liberty uh, to the, the allegorical paintings of David, etc. Um, he just happened to go the Augustan route, the Augustinian route. <laughs> Beatrice, you've been sitting there very patiently so far. What are your thoughts on the good? I, I'm, I have a question for you, actually, once you've said your piece about Napoleon and security and whether an argument could be made there, because I know you do love to think about the security angle. But firstly, let's have your thoughts. Napoleon the good. Yes, uh, first of all, I would like to chime in briefly with Josh's, uh, Josh's comment on uh, Napoleon being a nice brother to his relatives. Um, that thought uh, once came to me by mouth of one of my little children, a uh, very young one, when we were standing in Paris visiting the tomb of Napoleon, the Dome des Invalides, and um, I was explaining that the bad dictator, so I'm now giving away my position, sorry for that, but that that the guy was buried there and the people were so afraid of him that they covered his um, uh, coffin in numerous layers because they were afraid that he would raise again from the death. And then they asked, 
what are these other coffins, these other tombs standing around Napoleon in these galleries? I explained to them that it was brothers and sisters because he also made them kings and queens. And then the children said, why? We don't think Napoleon is such a monster because he was being very friendly to his brothers and sisters and he made them kings and queens as well. And he divided Europe amongst them. And then they looked at each other a bit unsure whether they would be willing to share Europe with their siblings had they been uh, crowned emperor. So that was a very good point that came to me quite early that he indeed did share the power with his, his, his relatives, even although he was very much aware about their shortcomings. So I agree with you there, Josh. But now being serious about the things that the, that, that really set Napoleon um uh, on a pedestal in history. He, he did some tremendously revolutionary things, perhaps even more revolutionary than the French Revolution itself. And one of the things, it may sound a bit abstract, but I've thought about this before, it has to do with security as well, is that Napoleon um, revolutionized the monarchical principle. What I mean with that is that he introduced in history a completely new type of governance. And modern, a state-centered, state machinery-like mode of governance with a monarch, an emperor at the helm of it. Um, and on the one hand, he borrowed, as you said correctly, heavily uh, out of the coffers of um, antiquity, uh, of, of, of Roman antiquity. Um, he also borrowed from the ancient regime, of course. Uh, it was a one-man government. It was like the old monarchy. He reintroduced plenipotentiaries, uh, administrational systems. But at the other hand, um, it was so modern. The executive power became centralized. There were new national institutions, a centralized judiciary, a centralized organizational finance, banking, codes, um, uh, and of course, this is also part of it, both on the domestic security plane. And well, here you can debate whether this is, was this was truly beneficial. Many people argue against that. He introduced uh, the modern type of centralized uh, police state activities. So not, of course, he did not centralize intelligence systems and um, uh, security agencies, but he revolutionized them to a large extent. And what also belongs to this part of centralized governance is, of course, the Grande Armée. You could even make the case that it is a success on its own. But again, the organizational innovation, uh, making a corpse under his command, but being at the same time self-sufficient, uh, uh, integrating infantry, cavalry and artillery. Um, I mean, Zach, you, you have spoken about this in far more detail and length than I could, but this is also from a governance mode of approach. Uh, this was highly effective. And I also agree uh, with the fact that it rested on his charisma. And that has to do with the fact that he used, he was not an, an how would you say, an ancient monarch in the sense that he was detached, that he was kind of divine-like, detached from the public. He he spoke with the public, he interacted with it, and he mobilized l'esprit public. See, he knew about the potency, you know, knew about the, the powerful 
aspect, the dimension, the new dimension that that would dominate democracies um, from that moment on, as it still does today. I mean, the current, the modern day dictator cannot rule without the people. He needs to engage and lure and seduce the people by means of social media. I mean, if he had Napoleon, a Napoleon-like figure today, he, he would probably rule the world because he would first buy Twitter, would dump Elon Musk and uh, he, he would rule by social media as, as he already did sort of like sorry that's that's quite a rant but um, from my perspective it's quite positive get the Louisiana purchases there's an alternative reality in which instead of selling off um, Louisiana to the Americans instead Napoleon turns everything around and buys Twitter for the sake of <laughs> France? I don't know. Um, th th that's a very odd rabbit hole. I was told not to go down rabbit holes this evening. So we shall abandon said rabbit hole. Um, One will have written the fan fiction somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure. There's a meme being made as we speak. I'm, I'm sure of it. However, I'll come back to this question I want to ask about security in just a second. The core system that you touched on there, it's, this is the one where we then get into that messy debate, don't we, about to what extent is it that Napoleon utilises the core system in a way that hasn't really been seen up until now? Um, and to what extent does he get credit for inventing the core system, which isn't entirely true? The, the notion of the core system predates Napoleon, and then it's the way in which he uses it that um, is, is seen as kind of unique. And, and there's no denying that if you give him a smallish body of troops, his ability is phenomenal. And you see that in 1815, just as you see it during the Italian campaigns, it's when armies get a bit too big that things then start to fall apart. And in part, that's about delegation. In part, it's also about to what extent is the infrastructure within Europe able to sustain the movement of armies of scale to enable you to carry out warfare in, if you like, Napoleon style? That, that's a whole, that, there's several podcasts to be recorded on, on that, quite frankly. Josh, let me get your um, thoughts on the, the military side of things, because oddly enough, we haven't really dwelt on that yet. I think it's probably because it's just such an obvious positive note for Napoleon. <clears throat> uh, Beatrice sort of sort of skirted it a little bit there when she was talking about the Grand Armée, um, being as that is one of his great achievements, the creation of that army and its maintenance and its organization is not only a military thing, it's a political thing, it's a social thing. Um, it created jobs, it, it drove economies. I mean, the lessons of, of Louis XIV's reign when it was in its height was essentially that if you want a good economy, start wars, because that means the state essentially is gets a supercharge. And... Um, so it worked for him, and he could have. He was. He was. He could have. He was very close, actually. I think to becoming another Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, it just didn't quite work out for him for various reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, no, I, I think it's it, this kind of touches on sort of one of the the myths that we might get into later. Really, it's not necessarily that the things that Napoleon did as a soldier had not been done before. It's just that he tended to do it better. 
and that he did it with a particular flair and energy that people could get behind. One of the good things about him as a type of, as his character, he was a, he was a leader. He was a good leader. Um, people, although at first didn't quite know what he was about, quickly fi figured out we can trust him though, especially in the early days in Italy and things, his generals were like, who's this little guy? What's he, he talks a big game. I don't really like that very much. And then, oh, all right, something to this. <laughs> Rachel, let me bring you in as well. Yeah, absolutely. Just just following on from what, what Josh said, when Napoleon arrived in Italy, some of the first generals he came across were, were Messina and Augereau and Serrurier, who would all obviously become marshals under him. And when he first met them, some of them, you know, they didn't even want to take their hats off. It wasn't until Napoleon took his own off that they were sort of forced to, to do likewise. And they initially were like, you know, who is this little upstart, basically, that's coming to, you know, he's 26, he's coming to tell us who've been, you know, fighting for, for years or decades in some cases, who's he to tell us what to do? And he, the strength of his character, which I think is fundamental to his success as a general, um, and he just bowled them over to the the point that Messina was quoted as saying, you know, that little bastard actually frightened me. Um, and he, he led by example. And sometimes when you see people discuss Napoleon, his, his ambitions sort of slated as a vice rather than a, an achievement but the drive and the ambition that he had his his focus I mean for for practically his whole life he slept very very little and he had a amazing capacity for work he he worked endlessly he'd have phenomenal memory he could recall faces details very very easily and again that kind of went hand in hand with his charisma because he would review troops, you know, later on through through his career, and, and he would recognise Sergeant So and So who had been at the the Battle of you know Rivoli with him or something, and you know he he would charm people that way. But his, I think he he made people raise their game because his his expectations were so high. He was a very demanding taskmaster. Um, and although, you know, later on he was he was very generous with rewards for people who served him well, you know, his his family, his his soldiers, etc. as well. But even when he was lavishly handing out titles and money, he was demanding everybody be at the top of their game all of the time. And he sort of capitalized on some of the best bits of the revolution. Obviously, a lot of people say, well, Napoleon was about meritocracy, but it wasn't. Napoleon who made, I'll stick to my pride-tested subject, it wasn't Napoleon who made the marshals, the Rev revolution made the marshals, Napoleon gave them titles. But he capitalised on the fact that the revolution had plucked the, the most talented figures who hadn't been executed, obviously, um, and brought them to the fore. And he was able to capitalise on that. You didn't need a title. You didn't need generations of pedigree. He wanted people who could do the job. And he chose his subordinates very, very well and recognised their strengths, their weaknesses and formed very, very good work in partnerships, obviously most notably with Bertie. Um, and the, the two of them together were just a complete tour de force. He was so efficient. He was interested in every little minutia, which, again, by the time you scale everything up, raises a lot of difficulties. But his attention to detail, his drive, his ability to just keep on going, lead by example, 
it did, as you, as you say, Josh, he didn't do anything new. He just did it better. He did it more effectively. He did it more efficiently and he communicated it better. Yeah, I think you'd be hard pushed to find somebody who, and I'm, I'm now, as I'm saying this, trying to think of somebody who would top Napoleon in terms of a motivator of people. You know, somebody who understood the benefit of both the stick and the carrot in an age when there's a greater inclination towards the stick than the carrot, if you see what I mean. Um, and, you know, we've discussed this before, Rachel. Yes, he was generous when he felt that there was reason to be generous. Um, Beatrice, I want to come back to um, the question that I was going to ask you, though, and it's a security question. Just to kind of wrap up this the good section, because we have been going for nearly half an hour, folks. So, you know, the good has had a fair innings here. Um, security. Can you make an argument that if Napoleon had succeeded in a kind of Pax Napoleonica as opposed to a Pax Britannica, that because he was putting people who were loyal to him on all the different thrones of Europe and creating a system whereby he was so dominant that nobody really dared cross him anyway, could you make the argument that Napoleon was seeking a system of security based around Napoleon and kind of his own individual character and personality and as such he was interested in a kind of stability in Europe oh that's a complex question um but thank you for bringing up and flagging the term security um it was not just security per se that Napoleon craved. I mean, Rachel made a very stark case that Napoleon had high ambitions and was driven by expansionist high-flying ideals rather than being secure, which is predominantly a conservative uh, purpose, you could say. Yeah? Keep the order intact, preserve the status quo. Yet security was not just something that Napoleon also needed as a base, so to, so to speak, kind of a zero-level situation from which he could then launch again his uh, campaigns and his interventions, etc. So he needed security at home, in the Tuileries, in his family as well. Uh, that's also part of the reason why he did employ his family, because he felt that they were the most secure people for him to rely on, the vassals that would always answer to him. So there's also this, you could say, egoistic uh, reason behind it. But back to security, it was never just an ambition for Napoleon alone. Napoleon, and this is something I would like to bring in, uh, was a, a great fan of Rousseau the 18th century uh, Enlightenment thinker. And as a 70-year-old, he read the refutation of Roustan, and uh, he became a fan ever since. And his book On the Social Contract was a book that Napoleon uh, read thoroughly. And uh, he found Rousseau a profound and a penetrating man. And he knew that for the people to adhere to the ruler, they needed security. So the social contract means that the state should organize the citizen's life down to the last degree because that gives the citizen security, it gives the citizen life and perhaps also welfare. And it could also be the starting point to build 
Well, not the social welfare state that came only later, of course, in the 20th century, but it, it wasn't a, a way of thinking that, that was thoroughly modern. It was 18th century, yes, but it was thoroughly modern. And this was what Napoleon had in mind if he thought about security. And then to your point, whether the Pax Napoleonic, uh, Napoleonica would rest on Napoleon, would hinge on Napoleon, yes. Because he was the emperor and nothing should stand between him, the new Charlemagne, and the people. But he would give the people security and rest. And you could say that the one big reason why there, that he did not achieve to consolidate his Pax Napoleonica, which he had in 1810, he, he very much had the whole of Europe at his feet, yet installed uh, the continental system. So it was all there. And then he um, uh, uh, lost it all because he sort of, um, and I don't think, but that, that's the case that you could make. I don't think that he lost it because he took away the liberties of the people, because he ended the revolution, because that's also what he did. We should talk about that as well, because Napoleon said so himself, the 18th Brumaire, 9 November of 1799, he ended the revolution. But I don't think that he lost out because he took away people's liberty. He lost out because he didn't give the people security. He only gave them war. He gave them hardship. He gave them detrimental situation, not just for the people that he was fighting, but also for the people that he was ruling. I have to admit, I'm I'm Dutch. I'm also speaking very much from the Dutch perspective. And uh, instead of bringing merely security to the Netherlands, he wanted to um, swallow the Netherlands and turn it into a kind of an yeah father uh, for his Grand Armee. He wanted to turn the Dutch economy to his um, yeah as, as a kind of a financial drain that would give him more money and the riches of the Netherlands. He even said so as much. He's allegedly been uh, here to say that je veux manger um, uh, le pays bas. So I want to devour the whole of the Netherlands. So and that's not the same as giving it security. So aside from discussing the security state, l'état sécuritaire, um, that is also being attributed to Napoleon, l'état policier with Fouché and the new uh, prison system, the new uh, security agencies that, that were there, the, the gendarmerie that he created to perfect that whole system. Even apart from that, uh, security was what he promised the people to give, but he didn't. And that he perhaps was also the worst thing that he overlooked. So we are starting to slide from the good to the bad, and I'm going to stay in exactly that theme and just kind of make us talk about the code for a bit, because the code is the big one, right? If you're a fan of Napoleon, you go, look, the code. It was exported across Europe. It was exported to the New World. It was used as the foundation of constitutions the world over. It's still the basis of French law. It was a significant achievement. Don't get me wrong. At the time, France probably needed the vast majority of Napoleon's code when it was first brought out, in the sense that France's laws before this point had been an absolute mess. Look at the situation in 1788. France desperately needed a massive overhaul of its legal system, no question. And do the revolutions attempt to form a series of constitutions? Yes. Do they stick? No, they don't. So the code and its ability to endure is a massive tick. But there's a massive, and this is where things start to lean for me, there's a massive 
side comment that you have to make, well, two side comments, in fact, when it comes to Napoleon and the law. The first is that women are worse off under Napoleon's system of law than they are prior to his legal reforms. Now, when half the population is worse off after your legal changes than beforehand, that's a big thing that you need to pay attention to. Yes, it might be consistent for the time, but France had moved far ahead of a number of other nations in Europe at this point. So France was kind of the beacon of hope and enlightenment for the future. And Napoleon winds that clock back. That's not something you can just ignore when that affects half of your population. And we've also got the big thing about slavery. And this is sort of the Marlene Dort line of reasoning, isn't it? That, you know, when you've got the, the reinstitution of slavery, which, yes, absolutely, was commonplace across empires during this period, and nobody's disputing that. But when he's again turning the clock back, that's when these questions about just how enlightened Napoleon really was, and just how beneficial he was to people, again get thrown into stark contrast, because it depends on your perspective. If you are a slave, you do not benefit from Napoleon's rule. If you're a woman, you do not benefit from Napoleon's rule. And, and that's more than half the population. When you then also factor in the number of people who die, and therefore quite clearly do not benefit from Napoleon's rule because they serve in the army and end up dead as a result of it, that's when things start to tip into the bad. So let's just go around the room quickly and talk code, and then we'll talk about other bad elements. Josh, do you want to go first? Uh, <clears throat> I'm not... I mean, I don't, I, I'm not the best person to talk about the code. I will admit this freely, but I mean, my thoughts on it are essentially that it ties somewhat into what, uh, a little what was said before, in that he, the fact that he made it, the fact that he had it created, was certainly necessary, I think. Uh, like you said, I absolutely agree that once he had come to power he needed and this actually goes into what beatrice was saying about about about, uh, about his want for security napoleon was actually a, very interested in security the security of france the security of the empire the security of his dynasty and one of the way and, and there are, there are several ways you can do that one is to and and the yeah one is for instance the what way he brought back in the the church because he knew that that was a stable thing that people wanted in their lives. It was like it was a good state, a good thing for stability to have the church there. Um, the other thing is that you must give the people uh, this sort of Rousseauian idea of these are the parameters in which you must live your life. Right. You every, The revolution was a series of uh, cartwheels through different governments and ideas. And he said, no, stop the wheel here. This is how we're going forwards. And there's a benefit to that. Obviously, the way it falls down famously and is very commonly and fairly um, pointed out that it was regressive to women and, of course, to slavery. Um, and I don't have an answer for you as to why, particularly on the slave matter. I know that people like uh, Madame de Stael basically thought that he did not rate women. Um, and that might be behind the idea of basically putting them uh, in in a pocket with stricter parameters. 
but I couldn't speak to, is, is, is exactly to why, and I think the why is very important for this particular discussion. Rachel, I'm hoping that you can kind of help us on that one, because I know you're particularly good on that area of women during this period. Um, yeah, I mean, Napoleon was a misogynist to the nth degree, essentially. Um, and I know when, you, again, it's it's a bit like you said about the slavery matters, that when you, when you say something like that online, people immediately go, yeah, but everybody was back then. But even by the standards of the time, Napoleon was an extreme and um Colin Core and uh, I think Cambaceri were noted on saying you know he didn't know how to talk to women he would be outstandingly rude you know he'd be he'd be at a social function and he was noted saying to one woman oh how red your eyebrows are he he just he would be extremely impolite he would be extremely sort of um contrary he would try and start arguments etc and Ultimately, he felt that women had two purposes and one led to the other. If they weren't giving birth or sleeping with him, he kind of didn't know what to do with them. And I mean, I think his attitude to women pretty much summed up when he he started a school for the daughters of members of the Légion d'Honneur in 1807. And he wrote in true Napoleon style this massive memorandum about what the curriculum should be. And this is what he said. What we ask of education is not that girls should think, but they should believe. The weakness of women's brains, the instability of their ideas, the place they will fill in society, their need for perpetual resignation and an easy and generous type of charity. All this can only be met by religion and of a re uh, religion of a gentle and charitable kind. He goes on to say why he didn't think religion was necessary for um, the boys' schools he was setting up. I want the place to produce not women of charm, but women of virtue. They must be attractive because they have high principles and warm hearts, not because they are witty or amusing. He didn't know what to do with intelligent women, I think is is the honest answer. He um prior to meeting Josephine, he didn't know what to do with women full stop. It was, I mean, she gets the credit for effectively making him fit for polite society because he was very brash. He was he had no social skills. He had drive, he had purpose, but he didn't no clue what to do with it and it's Josephine who I really think doesn't get the credit for the making of Napoleon because he wouldn't have achieved half of what he eventually did without her giving him the, the step up that he needed yeah. but yeah he he wanted women to be meek and to be attractive and to be conciliatory um but he didn't want them to challenge him um, he did not want them to question him and he didn't think it was a woman's place in society to be debating any big issue or to be involved in setting the, the direction of, of these issues. And I think this this kind of summarises for me the people who always say about, you know, Napoleon didn't write the code, he just put his name on it, it's it's Cambaceres work, you know, he takes the credit. That is Napoleon through and through it, you know, the the, the misogyny because that was 100% how how he was but the element of the code as well that this this for me is why when you see people debate Napoleon as, as a hero this is the line I can't cross because there's no justification a, a lot of what Napoleon did and achieved you can look at two ways and you can say well this was the benefit and this was the drawback and you know there's good sides and there's bad sides and was this better than the Enchant regime maybe not but to actively choose to reinstate slavery and to reduce people back to a state of bondage when it had been abolished 
there is zero justification for that in any way, shape or form. And that to me is the line that I can't go across for Napoleon. There's, there's no justification. It was an abhorrent decision and yeah, it's it's gonna always be a stain on his character. Could, could, could I chime in on that? Please, yes, I completely and wholeheartedly agree with, with Rachel. And uh, indeed, there's, there's these discussions that he was just a figurehead in, in uh, expressing the culture of the times. But there are reports of the sessions of the Conseil d'État uh, that, that he uh, created as well, which he sat on, in which Napoleon participated in the discussions on the civil code. So it's not just that he delegated that to uh, civil servants. He... Um, intervened and worked on the code himself and in these reports that have survived there's one debate devoted to exactly the status of women so all what rachel says it's being documented in the archives and uh well just to 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 give one detail uh, there was another paragraph in the civil code that was invented again um, it was a very old-fashioned paragraph that relegated do relegated daughters and wives to the status of minors. So they their status was legally reduced to the status of minors in the family. They were completely placed under the authority of a father and a husband. And this was Napoleon's doing. It was not Cambacer or Partalis or the other one. He, he left as a... Everything that could make a woman independent was stripped off her and given to the father, the guardianship of the father, and a married woman would pass under that of her husband. And this system that Napoleon invented and intervened in to create it himself lasted until the 1890s formally. And then um, the legal term for women of being incapable, so between, between brackets, so incapable is a citation like minors, criminals, and the mentally retarded. I looked it up, it's article 1124. Um, and that was still partly in place, legal inequality until 1946. So just to further compound Rachel's case, it's horrible. I mean, this is kind of the point, isn't it? That if you want to give Napoleon the credit for the positive aspects of the code, so you must also give him the stick for the negative aspects of the code. You can't have it both ways. You can't cherry pick between oh well there were some good things about the code we'll just ignore the bad bits because that's not very convenient um oh and p.s oh it was standard for the time if it's standard for the time why do we put him on a pedestal as being so much better and so much more enlightened than everybody else when he's winding the clock back on the the rights of more than half the population of the french empire that's a big problem and for me it's probably the code more than anything else and the, there is a caveat to that, which is that I always came up to this through Spain, but we'll talk about Spain in a bit. Um, but it's the code, probably, where Napoleon loses me. There are other bit the wars, I can take the arguments that actually both sides, you know, are interested in redressing this balance of power issue. And we can debate the man of peace myth, which I think is nonsense, at length. But there is a, a kernel of truth there that I, I would always say is valid. When it comes to the code, I just don't buy it, you know, and that's not British propaganda. That's just looking at the the outcomes of his actions and his words. Um, but enough of me waffling. Let's talk about other bads. Diplomacy is the one that I'm going to 
say here that and that's the only other one that I would mention I just don't see him as the most skilled diplomat out there there are moments when yes he can be diplomatic and charming and all the rest of it but on balance I just don't see enough of an inclination to compromise that that's my belief and I, I say that with an eye to 1813 1814 the scope for the peace settlements so that that that's me and that's my bad on that one let me throw it open Rachel you're nodding vigorously in response to that yeah diplomacy was not Napoleon's forte at all and again I think almost comes back to his personality he had almost a pathological need to be the one in control to be dominating everything and to have everything his own way and when you look at well, I know we're going to come to Spain, but when you look at the opportunity to convert, you know, a pretty lukewarm ally, to have them reasonably beholden to you and to sort of isolate Portugal and make Wellington's job a hell of a lot harder, he has to have it his way. And, you know, he wants the throne for, for Joseph. And he creates his own ulcer in that case. And, and it's the same with his dealings with, you know, Alexander and his need for you know, the, the naivety that everybody should implement the continental system. The idea that Bernadotte would take the throne of Sweden but govern in French interests because that's what Napoleon wants. And I, I know, obviously, the two of us discussed it in the, the episode we did on Marshal Bernadotte, but the naivety to think that you could install monarchs across Europe, people who had come to the forefront and are grown up during the French Revolution, who had seen what happened to a monarch who was perceived in governing in the interests of another nation, and think, I'll just distribute my brothers and sisters all around Europe, and they'll just do everything in the French interest, and it'll all be fine, because that's what I will, is outstandingly naive, as, you know, from, from my point of view. He could be so clear-sighted and so perceptive in some ways, and incredibly over-optimistic in others and had he been able to compromise had he been able to rather than need the need to see his enemies humiliated and ground down and submissive to his sort of overarching dominance he could have prolonged his whole career he he could have ultimately taken terms in 1813 and secured secured his dynasty um but he couldn't. He he had to be the one on top all the time. And ultimately, nobody, as far as I'm concerned, nobody did more to defeat Napoleon than Napoleon did. Yeah, um, it's it's a given that I'm with you on this. Uh, the the failure to compromise in 1813 and 14 is why I will always say that Napoleon drove his own empire to its destruction because of an unwillingness to at least hit that pause button which would have been beneficial to him. He was willing to gamble everything on war. Those are not the actions of somebody who is a man of peace. That, that's my stance on it. Um, I think we're probably all Team Bernadotte in the room uh, this evening, so I'm not sure you're going to get any pushback from us on that. But Beatrice, I know you want to come in. Well, briefly on the diplomacy, um, you're totally right. Uh, there, there is a little nuance to be introduced here because in the wake of modernizing and centralizing and streamlining the machinery of state, Napoleon did try to modernize the diplomatic surface as well. And uh, 
um, uh, after the 18th of Brumaire, Talleyrand was already there pretty soon, and Talleyrand got almost carte blanche of modernizing and setting up a good uh, group of uh, diplomatic servants. And of course, you have to take into account that uh, in those days and age, a good diplomat had to be financially independent. So it needed to work with personal wealth. Um, that meant that there were still lots of arist uh, aristocrats in the public service, in the diplomatic service. Um, and Talleyrand even admitted that for a young diplomat to reach the top of a career, a level of ambassador, was very difficult if you were not coming out of an important family. But Talleyrand, and here, I mean, you could say that this was also part of a modernization attempt, but, and that is in line with what you were saying before, Napoleon frustrated Talleyrand because Napoleon had a very specific choice for major ambassadorships. And he didn't give the ambassadorships to the best diplomats in his ranks. He gave them to the generals that he trusted. So out of the 72 ambassadors or ministers pleading potentiary, there were 22 generals. And we all know that the general is not necessarily a best diplomat. And well, Talleyrand was really very frustrated. And there's a quote of Talleyrand where he said, it was a time when people seemed to think, according to Talleyrand, that they did not need to have any esteem for talent when war and war alone seemed to be the prime mover of all affairs. So if we take Clausewitz's dictum on its head, you could say war is the continuation of politics with other means. So diploma diplomacy was the continuation of war with diplomatic means. So Napoleon was resting his, his bet betting on his generals rather than on the sound diplomats that Talleyrand was trying to raise. And I mean, the diplomats, they were getting more salaries, uh, the ranks uh, expanded. So lots of things did happen. It it wasn't that Napoleon didn't take the diplomats seriously, but he saw them more as a branch of his army than as um, uh, something else. I do love the elegance with which you turn Clausewitz on its head. That's brilliant. Um, Josh, let me get your thoughts, not only on diplomacy, but on the other bad elements. So <clears throat> Napoleon had a certain diplomatic and political acumen I don't rate him terribly well uh, as a diplomat or, a, or a, really a politician precisely. Like all generals, he had a, he he did have to have a certain ability to understand the political situation, and famously he he went he he ended the Italian campaign on his own terms without referring to the central government, and but but the. But these are the problems that sort of hounded him. He was—he never really stopped being a general. He was in the old-fashioned idea of the a soldier king. Uh, you know, his 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 court was in many ways an army camp. You know, Rachel was saying he didn't understand how to talk to women. He understood how to talk to men really well, really well. He understood how to talk to soldiers. He understood that world. He under so therefore everything what he did best was soldiering and so in a way as beatrice said everything he did was in this sort of military mindset because that was that was, he was just very good at that and that unfortunately for him is often quite a short-sighted way to look at a diplomatic problem because 
a campaign has specific goals it needs to um, achieve, and therefore generals can make diplomatic and political decisions within those uh, sort of situations. But generally speaking, they hand it back to the government, and they then deal with it. But Napoleon was the government. And so as the soldier king, you know, it, it makes total sense. And I'm in complete agreement with everything that Beatrice just said, right down to the ground. He also, though, had this weird personal agenda and that is his strange vendetta against the bourbons this tended to undermine a great deal of stability in terms of diplomatic stability in his 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 wish to try and create a a stable empire and a stable dynasty because wherever because he the entire thing about spain actually is a case in point first of all there's the obviously the neapolitan bourbons which is similar but the biggest one is spain that isn't necessarily to do with the continental system his 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 ruin in spain as i believe it was either talleyrand or fouché told him was essentially that you have gone after another Bourbon throne just because you don't want a Bourbon on the throne of Spain. And you've seen an opportunity due to the internal destabilization of the Spanish Empire to kick another Bourbon into touch. And we're going to get sucked into something we don't understand here. So he had these flaws in, that fo in those focus. Sometimes his focus was his flaw. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're not going to get much of an argument from me on, on any of those points. Is there anything else that people want to kind of discuss on, on the bad side of things before we move on to the ugly? Um... I've, I mean, uh, there's there's the looting. He didn't mind a bit of looting, you know. Most of the Louvre was filled with stuff from his conquests. So. See, this is where Andrew Roberts enters the chat and says, in his um, inimitable words, in that BBC documentary that was produced a few moments ago. A few moments, a few moments <laughs> ago. What am I on? Uh, I promise I'm not on the gin this evening. I promise. Uh, a few years ago, when his biography came out. Um, that those who take issue with Napoleon's looting need to, and I quote, get over themselves. So there you go, Josh. Andrew Roberts tells you to get over yourself. What say ye? He's perfectly within his rights to do so. I'm I'm not really in his league. Um, oh, nonsense. I'm, I'm quite happy for Professor Roberts to take issue with anything I say. Um, 
the, the the point of fact though is that although I may need to get over myself of raising the subject of Napoleon filling the Louvre with the treasures of other nations, and indeed, this is a massive, um, weird, uh, almost hypocritical standpoint for a European to say because most of our museums are filled with an awful lot of stuff from other countries. Doesn't make it good. That is perfectly valid, and really very fair. Um, so let's let's transition from the the bad to the ugly. I've let the cat out of the bag long before this point. Spain's my big one, um, but and this is where my bias does come in, and I will always hold my hands up to this. I approach this period through Spain. I started on the Peninsula War, and when you start to look at the Peninsula War and the horrors that are inflicted, yes, by both sides, the waste that is laid to Spain and Portugal over the course of that conflict, it is very hard to then go back and indulge in this, look at this fantastic character who's doing all of these wonderful things, deeply impressive those military record may be. And yes, whilst there might have been reforms that were beneficial, when you come at it from that, and you've immersed yourself in all of the horror of that conflict, it's almost impossible to then turn around and go, yeah, Napoleon, what a great guy. So that's my bias, and I hold my hands up. Spain will always be the ugly for me. There was no real need to, at the very least, go about it in the way in which he did. I do accept that, yes, as we've touched on already, you know, Spain was a hugely reluctant ally by this point in time. Trafalgar being an element of the reasoning behind that, but by no means the only reason um yes there's the whole situation in 1806 where there's that inclination um to to turn on the french and yes no that is not okay by any stretch of the imagination does that therefore justify a tit for tat that we then see in 1808 that depends how you like your history that depends how you like your moral judgments and that's for you as an individual to make because that's the fun of this that's interpretation for me that's distasteful and uh, whilst I can understand perhaps a desire to actually go to war with Spain and change the situation off the back of what happens and doesn't happen in the end in 1806, because the Prussians are dealt with so rapidly that there's no reason for Spain to get involved. Um, the, it's, it's the pushing through of the troops to, inverted commas, deal with the Portugal situation. So you've got all of these troops positioned in prime location in Spain to just then sweep in. That's what I take issue with as much as anything else. Rant over from me. Let me throw it open to others, the other uglies in this guy's career. Beatrice, do you want to go first on this one? Yes, I, I think there is one, one element that, that for me stands out um, where you could discuss that Napoleon was not just a general who took looting and the destruction and uh, the bloodlands that he left behind as a kind of a collateral damage, uh, and that he didn't really intend it to inflict so much harm on people. You could argue about that. You could also say that Napoleon exposed himself in his most ugly nature uh, to uh, in a discussion with Metternich. I don't. I mean. You're more the expert on uh, the Iberian campaign, um, Zach, but I wanted to to briefly bring up the discussion that Napoleon had with Metternich, Prince Clemens Wenzel von Metternich, the Austrian uh, foreign minister, uh, in June 1812. 
and uh, Metternich had brought peace proposals from Russia and Prussia, and well, he practically gave Napoleon so much on a plate. Um, France could still have parts of the Confederation of the Rhine, it still could have parts of Poland, um, parts of, of, of Italy, um, and Napoleon is being, well, there's, there's different reports on this meeting, Metternich and his secretary produced uh, protocols of it, and Metternich said that Napoleon burst out in fury and said, what do you want of me? Dishonor myself? Never. I shall die before yielding an inch of territory. Your monarchs are born on their thrones. They can't afford to be defeated. Me, I cannot. I am an upstart soldier. My domination won't last beyond today. I, when I, beyond today, I cease to be strong and people fear me. And then he just explains to Metternich um, that the, the casualties, the wars that they don't count, only the fruits of victory count. And when Metternich asked, and should we then slaughter another thousands or even million of people? And Napoleon says, it just doesn't matter, only the victory counts. And here I think, and there's another of these alleged peace talks, we don't know um, all the details of them, but they took place in 1813 again, after his uh, abysmal return from Russia. You could argue that he then did know what he inflicted about all these new generations of youngsters that he mobilized and that he called to action uh, with the levee en masse. And again, he's willing to slaughter, to give them all away, all these new generations, all these thousands of, of people that will die then at the Battle of the Nations. And then again uh, in Waterloo and all the other battles that still have to take place. And he willingly, openly expresses that his um, victory his eternal glory counts more than anything else, counts more than peace, counts more than the thousands and millions of lives. And Metternich sort of remains behind, exasperated. And he writes to his wives or his lovers, I don't know, again, he had so many, uh, one wife and uh, many lovers. Um, and he writes to them that he just does not understand the man. And uh, he's horrified about Napoleon. I think this is a moment where we really see Napoleon in his ugliest behavior. I like that you've just laid it out quite clearly for folks there that Metternich was not a bigamist, he was a philanderer. And there's an important distinction in terms of morality between the two. Um, yes, this is very much in the sort of Ed Cost line of argument, isn't it? You know, Napoleon, narcissistic personality disorder, the, the dangers of I'm not, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying that. I, I don't know about his pathology. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far and make a statement into that. But this is, this is documented that he said it. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, not at all. Josh, you're indicating that you want to come in. Yes. Um, I was just thinking about what you were saying there, Beatrice, and that that speaks quite a bit to the one of the one of the main criticisms of Napoleon, and that is his his coldness uh towards suffering. Um now he had this kind of um I don't know. It, it grew, or I, it, it, this idea that he was destined for something—that no matter what it was, he would not fade quietly away into the pages of history or something like that. Um, whether he didn't—he he couldn't really put a face to it exactly, but it was, you know, a conceptual idea of greatness that he was always destined to be great. And it—it it sounds awfully dramatic, but it does seem to be quite real that he believed this, and. 
as I said before, and as 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 Mechenik so you know well remembered, he was a soldier. And what made him such a good soldier was not only that he could inspire people, but that he understood that the lives of soldiers in war is part of a complicated equation um, that is related precisely to the objective you need to um, um, achieve. So Napoleon, better than some, some many other generals, and all generals understand this concept, even if it's on a subconscious level, that he knew how many lives it would take to take a bridge, a road, a town, uh, a hill, a forest piece of territory. He knew the weight, he, he knew the, the cost of the lives it would take, even time. He knew how many men he could sacrifice to buy him an hour's time. You know, generals, when they say, I need to keep up pressure, they're saying, I'm going to sacrifice 5,000 men to keep up the pressure, even though I don't actively need to do anything. And this is where Napoleon's famous talks, famously talks about, uh, I was born on the field of battle and I care not for the lives of a million men. This is absolutely true. It made him a very effective general because he could, because he knew the price on the check before it came to him. And he knew he could spend that. And that is, you know, that that's why what Metternich says and what your point was, Beatrice, just sort of rings so so true with what we know about Napoleon. I think it actually stands I think it stands up that criticism that he really was had a very cold appreciation of of his wars and the cost of keeping his dynasty in power. And this shouldn't, as you say, it shouldn't really surprise us, should it? Because every commander knows the human cost of all. That's a given. You don't win a conflict without huge loss of life on your own side and on the opposing side. And fundamentally, the aim of a war is to inflict more death on the other side than they inflict upon you. That's a pretty surefire way of, definitely, of winning battles. It definitely is. And there's also another thing that just occurred to me, and that is Egypt. Yes. Um, yes. Egypt is pointless. Um, it is a, a it, it's kind of packaged as oh we're going to hit indirectly at the British, but when Napoleon takes over, he has this weird idea of just becoming a pro a French proconsul. He's not going as a French general, or general of the Republic. He's going as a as a proconsular kind of I'm going to set up a kingdom out here in the name of France, but basically I'm running it and I'll do whatever I want. I'm the new Alexander. I'm going to go do this. And when he gets into it, Egypt becomes this sort of strange, spooky foreshadowing of his entire later career, practically. It, it He goes out there and then he tries to sort of project a whole bunch of European ideals on a bunch of people that he doesn't understand on a situation that is much more complicated than he thinks and through that he he exhibits a very ugly side to his nature a very medieval almost appreciation of practicality and that i'm talking about famously is the execution of prisoners of war at jaffa now he had i think signed off on some dodgy stuff initially regarding the um sort of the ex examples made of towns and things uh, which I'm, I can't quite remember the details of, but in, in, in Egypt, 
there was about two to three thousand Ottoman prisoners of war, people who had surrendered. These weren't just this wasn't just looting and they got killed because the because no quarter was given. Quarter had been given. But in a weird sort of crusader mindset, he decides that the prisoners at Jaffa will slow him down, take up too much of his men. And so we should they needed to be executed. This also, in a weird way, ties speaks somewhat to his idea of well, uh, well, race and 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 that slavery angle back there. He he didn't do things like this when he got what you know in when he became emperor. And so you have to ask the question: Did he just think that the lives of white Christians? You know, he could he knew he couldn't do this to white Christians, but you could do this to Middle Eastern Muslims. And so, yeah, Egypt is a very ugly one for me for a lot of these sorts of reasons as well. I think we should raise that. The argument that I often see banded around, though, and this comes from Napoleon's own mouth, is he couldn't feed them. And then there's this sub clause that gets tagged on, which is. Um, well, you the... could just let them go, couldn't you? If you take their muskets away, it's the Ottoman army in Egypt, for heaven's sake. <laughs> I mean, there is that. But then it's also <laughs> justified by those who want to justify it along the lines of well, they were, they'd originally been taken prisoner, they'd then been released on um, the understanding that they wouldn't take up arms against the French. And then they were found to have taken up arms against the French and as such had forfeited any rights to life or whatever, um, which does rather, it does seem quite naive, if I'm being honest. You know, this idea that you're going to release some former soldiers, send them home, and then expect them to not take up arms again. I, I'm sceptical that I would ever believe that. I, granted, this is an age of honour and people giving their word and all the rest of it, but... Do either of those things justify slaughtering somebody in cold blood? And I, I don't think they do, not by the standards of European warfare as they had come to this point. Unfortunately, though, things in the East did not, the rules in the East didn't count the same way. You can see this in the, the Russian wars with the Ottomans and the Persians and things like that. Very nasty stuff happened in these wars because they felt that their I don't know the the rules of morality changed after a certain point of longitude, um, and though yes, the, I mean this is also this this is this is sort of like the the topics of motive when you come to the execution of the Duke Danhin. Um, mm. Yes, he was a traitor. Yes, he he was a rebel. He wanted to kill Napoleon. But the way that he went about dealing with it, even if he didn't actually sort of say, yes, execute that guy himself, if he didn't point the finger himself, people in his name representing his government grabbed this guy from foreign territory, dragged him across the border, and in a very, very dodgy bit of justice, executed him. And it's the same here in Jaffa. The, they might have been breaking their their treaty obligations, but that's a lot of people to execute that are still prisoners of war, technically. 
Rachel, let me bring in you uh, bring you in for the last word on the ugly category, and then we'll we'll move on to the brilliant. Yeah, Jaffa and um, Duncan were two of the two of the things on my list, but it, it kind of I just fundamentally agree with everything Beatrice and Josh have said. He he had no real appreciation for the value of human life in and of itself, only as in what it represented to achieve a goal. And obviously, and those two cases are examples of his pure, pure cold-blooded execution. It's not death on a battlefield. But so often with Napoleon, his, his vices and his virtues seem to be two sides of identical coins. And if you if you were on a battlefield or if you encountered Napoleon amongst his men, he gave every indication of truly caring about his men's welfare. He he would speak to them, he would engage with them, he would remember faces and names. He was incredibly generous to to widows and dependents. If you look at the letters he sent to um, you know, the widows of Marshal Lang and Marshal Bessier, they're really emotive, heartfelt letters. And to, to all intents and purposes, this is a man who really cares about his troops. And if you contrast, I mean, usually the one he's most often contrasted with is Wellington, who comparably is much colder. He's a very reserved individual. His men don't love him, they respect him. But it's Wellington who pauses before throwing men's lives away fruitlessly. And he gets criticised for that. He's called cautious. I don't think being unwilling to sacrifice people's lives fruitlessly is something to be criticised. And Napoleon, this man who can engage, who, you know, enthuses him, that he creates this whole esprit de corps, who inspires and leads and gets this love, this real genuine love from his soldiers, throws lives away at the drop of a hat. And there's that quote about, you know, doesn't care about, you know, a million men's lives. And that's genuinely true. He he didn't he didn't care how many lives it took to achieve an outcome. It was all about the end goal. And you you look at um, you know Ilau and Freeland and stuff, and the the levels of casualty there. But what matters is he didn't lose. What matters is he's achieved something, and that's a very cold blooded way of looking at it. Because if you if you can't attach any value to life at all, then it's it's very difficult to paint somebody in a moralistic light. Um, obviously, the end goal of war, as you've already said, is to kill more people than on the other side than they kill of yours. But surely, the proviso of a good general is to preserve as many lives among your own men as can possibly be attained. And to to have this sort of cavalier attitude of these people are small fry, you know, they're, they're, and there's there's a trait theory in, in management studies that the idea that leadership is not a science, it's an art and people are either born with the capabilities or they're not, you're, you're born to be great or you're not. And Napoleon seems to really subscribe to this, you know, mode of, of thinking that, he is blessed by fortune. Fortune is a plan for him. He's fortune's favoured child or, you know, destiny's favoured child, whatever you want to call it. Um, and therefore his life is special, but other people's aren't. And that sort of cavalier attitude to the death of his own men is, is very difficult to get my head around. Um, and his, his attitude to the suffering of, of other people. Um, you know, we, we just recorded an episode on, on Udino a, few, a couple of weeks ago and Marshall Udino's wife died while he was in Holland. He had seven children um, 
left, obviously motherless. And he had applied to Napoleon for a leave of absence to go home and obviously take care of said children and make arrangements for them and to to attend to the the um you know arrangements for the burial of his wife. And Napoleon refused it. It the suffering of those children didn't matter. What mattered was that Udino was in Holland to achieve Napoleon's end goal. And yeah, it's almost reptilian in the cold-bloodedness. Um, and it's very difficult to sort of marry up with the very emotive personality he could be. So he's, yeah, the thing I find so interesting about Napoleon is just this massive study in contradictions. He absolutely is. Let's swing back to some positives. We've bashed him for a good period of time now. The brilliance or the times that he absolutely got it right. I'm going to go with something that we've talked about a fair bit already, motivation. That's when he gets it absolutely spot on. He understands how to push somebody's buttons and get the most out of them. In that sense, you can absolutely understand wanting to study this guy and his habits and his character for another 200 years, because as a study of how to really get people to give their all to a cause, he's exceptional. And I, I think would be hard pushed to find somebody who would disagree on that score. Just look at his success amongst his troops. Yes, okay, we, we've had the conversation about better with the army than with other people, but nonetheless, as a, a you know, somebody to, to stir people and get them to rally to a cause, he's your guy. Let me throw it open to the rest of you. Other brilliance or you know, counter arguments to what I've just said? Yes, to, to, to briefly um, support that argument and, and link it back to Jaffa, one of the biggest mysteries of Napoleon's charisma is how he turned that misery and that uh, stricken situation and also almost a traitorous way in which Napoleon left the scene. He turned it on its head and he made at one of his biggest um, um, uh, points of mobilization, the masses in France was Jaffa. You may remember there's this famous painting, Napoleon visiting the plague uh, uh, stricken at Jaffa, and it's uh, painted by Antoine Jean Gros, the one who painted Napoleon before. And this painting was um, commissioned by Napoleon in 1804 himself, and then um, Gros, was also part, Gros was also part of the army, he followed Bonaparte, and when he came back, he asked Gross to make this painting and Napoleon put it out in Paris and uh, people could buy tickets to visit the painting. And it was a huge success. And why was it a success? Because Napoleon stylized himself as a kind of a messiah figure. He's standing in the middle of the painting and he's touching the plague bulb, the, the bubonic plague bulb of a, a prisoner, and uh, people were said to die if they touched plague um, source. Napoleon didn't die, obviously, so it was a risk. He, he really did that. and But it also plays into the um, royal touch, the way kings and queens of yore, they touched their patients, uh, they touched their citizens, and they, they, would, um, they would then be healed um, uh, mysteriously or divinely. And this is a moment when Napoleon puts himself in the blackest, the deepest heart of, of the misery that he is inflicting on the soldiers and he turns it on his head and he presents it as a major a PR result, a major PR success because people come and they see Napoleon and Napoleon was there in Egypt, he brings back all these souvenirs, uh, he gives those uh, porcelain to Josephine, 
by the way, the whole porcelain that he gives to Josephine, which is based on his Egypt campaign, is now in Apsley House. It's it's beautiful. It's been given to um, the Duke mm -hmm. of Wellington afterwards by the Bourbons. But back then, it was still Napoleon's. And uh, he turned a major disaster on his head and made it a, a public uh, uh, relations re success. I, I can't... I can't hardly see a modern uh, demagogue being so successful here with Napoleon. So this was a streak of brilliance. It, it's astonishing. The recovery from Egypt is utterly astonishing. He, the, the, it's like it, it's 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 a perfect allegory as well. He is the phoenix rising from the flames, and the ashes are the Armée d'Orient, uh, basically that he left in Egypt to go and save France. Uh, fortune in absolutely smiled on him there that because he was able to go back and address the the anti-jacobin coup that had occurred while he was in egypt you know it was perfect timing for a return and also i mean he'd just been feeding france with glorious tales of the pyramids and things like that but it is absolutely astonishing that 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 egypt was the base from which he he attained the the <laughs> the <brumaire. laughs> Which is the other thing that he's brilliant at, right? And that ties in quite closely, obviously, to motivation, which is propaganda. Boy, did this guy know how to spin a propaganda. Look at the paintings. Those paintings are incredible. The Davids, for heaven's sake, they're spectacular. Whether you love him or you loathe him, it's impossible not to look at those paintings and not be impressed and not to get that sense of awe that he sought to inspire and still inspires amongst many people today. Mm -hmm. Rachel, you're you're nodding in, in agreement there. Yeah, he's he's one of the great propagandists of of history, and in in terms of an orator as well, his speech making, he is one of these brilliant communicators, and I think that's that's why so much of of his story still resonates when you when you look at his speech making, you understand why he could stir emotions in people he could you know connect with them on a, on a human level and you know to go back to what we said at the start of the episode if social media existed Napoleon would be all over that I mean he when you look at the the sort of the visual culture he created and the the semiotics that he uses and the the story again to go back to the, the point I've you know made right at the start the storytelling that he builds through his propaganda it's astonishing. It's really, really powerful. And I think he he creates this almost Shakespearean dimension to his story. Um and and you kind of see that addressed as well when he when he comments on St. Helena about his fall. The idea is that he was this this nobody, he was this friendless outsider with a funny accent, he was bullied, and he read so wildly, widely on ancient Rome and he foresaw himself as the next Caesar or Alexander and he went out there and accomplished it by his own drive. He creates his own court, etc. But when he falls, in his terminology, it's because he is betrayed, you know, by Marmel, by Bernadotte, by Fouché and Talleyrand. He's let down and it's only through the sort of machinations of, you know, the people who stab him in the back that he falls and he creates this you know Shakespearean tale that people genuinely buy into as a propagandist I genuinely don't think there is anyone in history so effective as he Josh I know you wanted to come in with one more point on this so uh, yeah I thought I thought it was uh, would be important and those are excellent points Rachel um 
he was an excellent propagandist and that is seen especially when he gets things right and Napoleon, though many people try to spin him as a lawgiver and a statesman and things like that, he is remembered principally as a great general, and I think he is remembered as a great general because he's one of the, he is one of those select few that manages to orchestrate a victory in which it appears as if the conclusion is that of a chessboard, whereby you reach a certain point and defeat is inevitable for the enemy. And that, of course, is Ulm and Austerlitz. Those victories set him very high amongst generals because they are just so well managed and psych and they they employ a certain psychology um, that where everything seemed to come together and that is where the he's he's considered a brilliant general because of those things and I, that probably has to be rec sort of said in, in this conversation. <laughs> I think it does, and that is a, a point that's well made. I do have one eye on the time, um, and I also note that we have one thing that we haven't discussed, which is the misunderstood. Um, so we'll, we'll be very, very brief on this um, and just go around the room quickly and just kind of... This is about the misconceptions, the myths, if you like, that people have that really hack us off. For me, uh, lots of people are, about, are expecting me to sort of turn around and say, oh, well, you know, I dislike the Napoleon the Great myth. That's not where I'm going to go with this, where I'm going to go is really quite simple. It's this idea that Napoleon is a constant, that the guy that you have in, in 1792 at Toulon is the same guy who is taking part in the Brumaker in 1799, who's the same guy who in 1815 comes back from exile in Elba. Napoleon is not a constant. And there are points in his career where, yes, there is brilliance. There is plenty of good. There are also turning points where it becomes a slippery slope downwards. For me, that turning point is around about 1804, particularly with the code, as we've discussed earlier. So, you know, I, I just think that, and what I would encourage people to do off the back of this is just to think about the demarcation of the points that you do or don't value from Napoleon's career and consider whether there's a peak. There's a point at which Napoleon stops being great or brilliant or positive or however you want to phrase it and actually the negatives start to outweigh the positives because for me that's very much how things kind of play out in my mind that's my misconception i'm gonna throw it over to the rest of you rachel yeah that kind of is very similar as to how i feel particularly around the debates around waterloo the idea that the Napoleon of Waterloo was the Napoleon of Austerlitz and fundamentally he wasn't, um, and that Waterloo was only a defeat because of the incompetencies of other men, not Napoleon's. Um, he commanded that campaign, and if we're going to credit him for the victories at Austerlitz and we're going to credit him for the victories at Marengo, who you could argue were down to Sult and Desai respectively because they played those decisive strokes in the battle, you can't then say Waterloo was Ney and Grouchy's defeat. Um, but on the positive side, I don't think sometimes it's appreciated just how prodigiously good an administrator he was in terms of his attention to detail and the work that he accomplished. Um, so there's, there's good and bad. Josh? Uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with the idea that there's good and bad. And, you know, I, I do actually try not to take a very firm stance on 
whether Napoleon was good or bad. Uh, I run away from that. <laughs> uh, but uh, misconceptions. Um, I am not of the opinion that he was an average Joe just trying to tear down the system. When people make that argument, I, I, it makes me feel funny. He was, yes, he was an uncouth sort of um, soldiery type by the time he started coming to prominence, but he was in many ways quite like Wellington was. He was lower nobility. He was raised to whatever standard you like as a gentleman. I'm not 100% sure how much of a Republican he truly was. Uh, he seemed to lose interest a great deal in actively tearing down monarchies after he got disillusioned with the with Corsican independence, and he, and, and let's put it this way: if he didn't, if he was learning on a job how to be a king, he had great instincts. Um, you know, as an enlightened monarch, let's all try and remember where the enlightenment came from. It came from his sort of class of nobility. And so don't be your, I, I, I would caution people to not swallow completely the idea that he was just one of us and everybody was threatened by that. Beatrice? Yes, very briefly, because I agree with Rachel and George. Um, what Josh was saying made me think of Max uh, Weber's definition of charisma. Charisma doesn't that much lay only in the person itself, although that person may have outstanding talents and capacities, and we discussed the brilliancy of Napoleon, that's definitely there. But Napoleon also was, and I'm, I'm very truly an historian, not a political scientist, I believe in contingencies. And I think there was this opening in time where Europe, where France, where people were craving for a Napoleon-like figure as they were perhaps craving for revolution, but he ended the revolution and he he managed to end the revolution because the people in France wanted the revolution to end the way it had turned out to be. And then he crowned himself emperor because the people in France wanted to have a new emperor. And many people in Europe, they wanted to have a new modern centralized state. So he, he came right on time in that moment of time and he did exactly that and uh, it also transpired from what happened after him he, he wasn't that big mythical figure that he liked himself um, to make make himself out to be but there was a moment in time where the people really wanted changes so when he left egypt for example he didn't do much good in egypt he he killed and maimed and slaughtered and left again and he introduced far too radical and uh, um utopian ideals yet when he left he created such a power vacuum that other rulers that the ottoman empire was undermined it was pushed in the direction of, of the other european it, it introduced islamic society in europe so he set into motion so many things he didn't just do it because he was a unique figure it was also a unique moment in time which he obviously um was sensitive to so he jumped in that hole that history made open for him it's been a fascinating discussion i think we could go on for another four hours quite frankly we won't though folks because let's be honest you need to get off your sofa and go and help yourself to the leftovers from your christmas dinner we are however going to end this as we started with a christmas reference no i'm not asking you how napoleon would have um, viewed your christmas presents this year but Beatrice, you do have a nice little detail for us on Napoleon and Christmas, don't you? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we do know that Napoleon celebrated Christmas and the December month was an important month for him and he did give presents. And um, he even gave a nativity scene uh, to his, his, his relatives, his nephews, and it's still in the Musée Bonaparte in Ajaccio. But I want to end with a Christmas legend, as it has been recorded in uh, the 19th century, um, uh, very early on, already in 1810, by a French historian, Le Notre. And I'm not going to say whether this is a true story or not. It is a legend. And people in France read it to their children. And the legend goes as follows. Napoleon's mother, Signora Letizia, had a nativity scene of her own, made by shepherds uh, out of the area. Quite a big nativity scene. But she was worried... Uh, uh, because her boys are, uh, were going to take it apart. They didn't want her to build up the nativity scene. They went away with the crowns of the Magi. They crowned themselves and they took away the star that was placed on top of um, 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 the stable and they played with this. And according to the historian, this is a prophecy the Bonapartes, especially the one little boy, he would become the star, the comet himself, that would cross the sky in Europe, and they would become the Magi of France. That's how far the Christmas story legend goes. Well, that's a, a point to end on. Um, if ever there was something that encapsulated Bonapartism and mythologizing and all the rest of it, the stuff that we end up unpicking hour after hour on this show. It's that in a nutshell. Thank you so much for that, Beatrice. Folks, thank you all for your time this evening. Josh, Rachel, Beatrice, you've been a delight as ever. People, I'm going to put all of the links to their Twitter feeds uh, in the show notes under the description underneath this so you can make sure you follow them. They will greatly enrich your 2023 if you go and follow them on Twitter. Josh, Bullock's Green and Good Madeira, available hellion.co.uk. People, go buy it. Hey, there might even be a January sale that you could, or a Boxing Day sale or something that you can go and capitalise on. Beatrice, Fighting Terror After Napoleon, Cambridge University Press. Folks, same story. Look it up. I'll even stick, stick links in the description so you can get through to those quickly. Thank you so much for your time. A very Merry Christmas. And I really look forward to recording more with you in the new year. Folks, remember what I said at the start. Please remember to like, subscribe and share with a friend. Three simple things that make a huge difference. If you're particularly loving the show, why not head over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a five star review and make sure you add a comment as well so that I can get your feedback on what's working on the show. As ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. You can get your hands on bonus content, hours upon hours of um, additional material, episodes on uh, the Marshalls, on the American Revolution, exclusive chats uh, on a wide range of things, in addition to a whole host of perks. Make sure that you avail yourself of those benefits if you are inclined. Obviously, I completely understand that that may not be for everybody and whatever support you're able to give, it means a huge amount, whatever form it takes. Particular shout outs. Those who are mentioned in dispatches are Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Andrew Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, 
Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, and James Fluick. The Admirals are David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, and Michael Guest. The Marshals are Rory Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, David Maxwell, and Juo Teixeira. The Emperor, that's J.C. Kaiser. And the Legion to Scholars, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. A very Merry Christmas to you all. And as always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.